This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Today we're talking about class in America. We hear a lot about it, especially with regards to the middle class or the working class. But what is class in America and where does it come from? And why is it important? Joining me today is historian Steve Fraser, who has written Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. Steve, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. To start, why does class matter in America? Well, I think it's, it's, it's apparent to people today uh, that it matters a great deal, not only in terms of our daily life. We've become increasingly conscious as a society over the last whatever decade, even more, of the great inequalities that disfigure American life and that affect every area of our life. I mean, the basic distribution of income and wealth, but schooling and medical care and uh, a thousand other features of our daily life are affected by where you rank uh, in a in a what I would call a class hierarchy. Our language is now full of that. There's the 1% and the 99% and various other versions uh, or vocabularies that suggest we are uh, a profoundly class divided uh, society. And, and I think it has become a commonplace to talk about the results of the 2016 presidential election as another class. However you may interpret that election, I think most people think in one way or another that uh, the victory that went to Trump was in part because of his appeal, for whatever reason that appeal might have been, to uh, kind of white, blue-collar segments of American life, that it was a class appeal, that it was a form of right-wing populism. Uh, so our political life has increasingly, and really uh, there are left-wing versions of that that have been profoundly influencing our recent history. The Bernie Sanders phenomenon in the Democratic Party, uh, his enormous uh, success uh, as a avowed socialist, uh, decrying the concentration of power in among financial and corporate elites uh, was another sign of uh, how self-conscious we have recently become in America of, uh, of uh, a class. But this, of course, has not always been the case. And, and in fact, class consciousness, so to speak, violates, in my view, a kind of basic tenant of the American mythos from the very founding of the country, or even before it was a country, that, that America was an exceptional place where classes that might have uh, uh, been quite commonplace uh, in the old world, in Europe, and elsewhere in the West, uh, were either banished at the very founding of America or bound to die away. And uh, one of the great promises of the American dream and of the new world was that we were uniquely exceptionally American exceptionalism is a phrase used to capture this notion uh, a, a, a society free of classes or if not free of them entirely that that to the degree classes existed they would be going out of existence thanks to you know, the abundance of the American economy its natural resources its democratic 
uh, political culture and, and so on. And, and, and this American dream of a kind of classless or universal middle class <laughs> society, the class that is no class, uh, has, has uh, figured in our life uh, all throughout our history from the earliest settlements in colonial America uh, through to the uh, present day. And I think of it, and I try to argue in my book, as a form of denial, that it's a kind of utopia that denies the reality of class in our in our public life uh, that's been there from the beginning. So, I mean, this brings up a couple of questions, but the first being, um, was is the idea of a classless America uh, from the beginning, is this is it sort of a, a myth or an unattainable goal? Um, you know, especially with things like slavery in the early part of American history. Um, right. It seems embedded almost in, in sort of the in, in sort of the history of America. Is it a myth that this could happen, that there'd be a classless? Uh, well, society? I think it's a myth in, in, the, in the more profound sense of myth, meaning that myth rests on some kernel of reality and then gets embellished and exaggerated and made fantastical. But the reality is really, is that the the new world did present enormous new opportunities for people from the old world uh, to start afresh. They didn't simply leave their class heritages behind them. They came on the boats. But nonetheless, the the richness and vastness of 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 this new America did provide chances for people to escape uh, the class their places in the class hierarchy that had defined them in the old world. And and so there was a kernel of truth and an important one to that myth, which gave the myth the power it has. And then our culture has exaggerated the reality of that, uh, exaggerated that reality. There was, there was There was something real, but then became uh, exaggerated, and as you know, of course, American society not only ne- almost begins as a slave society, but even before there's a, it's a slave society, it's a society, it's a settler society, which takes advantage of the indigenous native population that had been in the New World for ten thousand years, uses its resources, exploits its resources, and tra- and transforms those Indian societies, those Native American societies until they no longer are uh, can exist as viable societies. But let me give you an example. Plymouth is 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 is, is and Jamestown are both business enterprises. That is to say they are established by royally sanctioned in England trading companies which have investors, bankers, creditors and so on. They are they go to the new world in order to make a profit. Now, there are other reasons people go to escape. We know this as part of religious, to escape religious persecution and for other reasons as well. But those companies can only continue to exist. Those settlements can only, if they can turn a profit and return a profit to their investors, meet their creditors' demands, make sure their debts are, 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 are supportable. How do they do that? Well, in Plymouth, one way they do that is by taking advantage of the fur trade. The fur trade is a huge international enterprise in in 17th century Europe and Russia, and and it be, and and America becomes a supply uh, uh, a supplier of uh, enormous quantities of fur, particularly beaver, but all other kinds of fur. Who's 
Who's trapping that beaver? Well, these indigenous native populations are. And it, the Plymouth colony is almost bankrupt and almost has to go out of existence until it discovers a source of the fur trade among uh, Native Americans in Maine, actually, who they begin trading with up the coast of New England. So this is an example for me of how even uh, our, our most formative settlements in America rest on notions of, of, uh, of class division, of hierarchy, of private property, which is not to belie the fact that they are also have a, 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 uh, a, a more egalitarian social structure than those uh, settlers were used to in Europe. It is not to belie the fact that they do provide opportunity for people to become landowners and so on in, in Massachusetts Bay and in, and, in, and, in, and in Virginia and so on. But it's, it's, it's an act of denial to not realize that these societies also came into existence as business enterprises and, 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 and with all the class tensions and antagonisms, in this case, between settler society and indigenous society, but in other cases, within the society itself. In fact, Plymouth and Jamestown, within settler society, have a whole hierarchy of their own. There are, there are town elders who are the richest, the most politically powerful. People defer to them just as they had in Europe. Uh, they are the biggest landowners, um, and uh, and so that class structure doesn't vanish when people get off the Arabella or the Mayflower. And uh, within the relationship between um, the colonies, the, the, these early settlers, and say um, England back home, in a way, um, were were they viewed as parts of the same class structure? Were the settlers on a different you know, level of, of the class structure than, say, the people back in England that they were well, you know, sending back? It's a good question. It depends on, on what kind of a settler you were. If you were just, if you were a major shareholder, and they had shareholders in the, in the trading company that sent you abroad, then you were kind of on a par with the big merchants, landlords, bankers back in London or, or wherever you have, you know, in the case of the Dutch in Antwerp or Amsterdam, in the case of New York, um, the colony of New York or New Amsterdam. Uh, but if you were not uh, so uh, endowed with that kind of property as a settler, then of course you were looked down on as a, as I don't, I don't mean held in contempt necessarily, but you were, you did not have the power, the authority, the social esteem, the social status that, uh, that your your betters had, just as it was uh, true in England. And in fact, there were a lot of class antagonisms even on board the ship as they as they neared uh, you, know, you know as they neared the New World about what the division of spoils would be. Were they successful in establishing uh, settlements in the New World? And my, my point here is that it, 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 again, like in the Constitution, we think of the Constitution as a great defender of liberty for all. And in some sense, it is. It's a, it's a great document. We, the people, established this democratic government. But there was enormous opposition to the adoption of the Constitution on the part of all kinds of, especially uh, the more rural parts of America, small towns and, and, and in the hinterland among farmers and so on, who were largely self-sufficient, not part of the global, the domestic and global marketplace for foodstuffs and so on, who were practicing, who were uh, uh, oftentimes found themselves in debt 
to Eastern merchants, uh, by East Coast merchants and so on, who, who fear the adoption of the new form of government, this new constitution, as a way of protecting private property against the democratic insurgencies that were common in places like Rhode Island and Pennsylvania and Massachusetts under the Articles of Confederation, where, for example, uh, legislators dominated by democratic elements, especially in the West, uh, passed uh, uh, legislation to cancel debts for, by indebted farmers. There were actual rebellions uh, uh, against judges who were evicting farmers who were, had fallen into debt to Eastern merchants. Uh, there were uh, debt moratoria declared by these legislatures. There was too much democracy for the newly uh, 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 developing uh, uh, colonial seaboard elite merchants, uh, bankers, uh, landholders, uh, holders of, of Revolutionary War debt, afraid that that debt would not be made good by legislatures that were canceling the debts, uh, currency speculators. These people um, needed a new form of government to protect against the transgressions against private property that local self-governments and even whole state legislatures were committing. And so there is this enormously ferocious battle about the adoption of the Constitution. It's, by, it's far from unanimous. It's a near-miss thing. The Constitutional Convention that's held in Philadelphia is held in secret because the delegates who come there, all of them men of property, because uh, who else could afford to take off two or three months and sit around in a hall in Philadelphia <laughs> debating the future of the country, um, it's held in secret because they are afraid of this democratic impulse in the country. So on the one hand, the Constitution protects all kinds of liberties. We know about the Bill of Rights and so on, which was only foisted on the, on the Constitution by these more democratic elements in the country. Uh, but uh, so you see even there in, 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 in the adopting of what we consider our found, uh, the, the document that it, it, our whole country rests on, class antagonisms aflame. And the liberty for some, especially for uh, for the for, for wealthier elements, more property or more commercially oriented uh, elements of society came at the cost of liberty for others, uh, especially in the hinterlands of the new of of, of, uh, of uh, you know places like Pennsylvania and Virginia and so on. And of course, uh, needless to say, you know this is this is not even a class question. Slavery is is protected by the Constitution. Yeah, and and what is um, slavery's role in sort of this the foundation of a class system in America? Um, particularly, uh, you know, you're saying it, it was it was protected by the Constitution, and then after the the freeing of the slaves, what kind of disruption to the class system did that introduce? Yeah, well, uh, uh, of course, the, the the on the one hand, the the commercial development and later even the industrial development of the country in its origins rests to some considerable degree on slavery. It's an enormously profitable enterprise. Uh, northern mercantile elements, especially in New York and Boston and elsewhere, are deeply invested in the slave in the slave trade, but also in slave agriculture. They are the creditors 
that are, are uh, supplying the necessary credits to Southern plantation owners. Jefferson, for example, was chronically deeply in debt uh, to uh, uh, Northern merchants in order to fund his slave operations on his plantations. Um, so so, so it's, it, that, that capital accumulation in the North rests on the enormous profitability, especially of cotton agriculture, which is slave agriculture in, in the South. And of course, the the, uh, the the civil war that emancipates uh, slaves has a devastating effect on the old slaveocracy, the the uh, the agrarian aristocracy that ran the South, but opens up the country to this extraordinarily rapid pace of industrialization, which which introduces a new element of class antagonism into American life, uh, which is the fierce, multi-sided, both agrarian and urban resistance to uh, industrial capitalism. And, and in my book, one of the instances I talk about is the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Liberty, of course, is part of the American mythos. It's supposed to be that beacon of freedom welcoming to our shores, the huddled masses, the immigrant masses, uh, impoverished masses of, of Europe and, and elsewhere for that matter. But as a matter of fact, the Statue of Liberty was designed both in France, which, which is a gift, of course, from, from France, but also by uh, uh, its American uh, benefactors as a kind of prophylactic against what had become a growing fierce class struggle in America. Uh, during the 18, you know, the statue was erected in 1886, but it's years before that that plans for the statue are afoot in France and in the United States. Those, that's a period both in France, it's the period of the Paris Commune, and in America of vast, uh, the Great Railway Strike of 1877, which shuts down the whole railway network of the country and leads to mass general strikes all over the place. Uh, there's, there are strikes, you know, there are federal and state troops sent out to Crush strikes all over the American landscape. There's a Haymarket massacre, and so on and so forth. It's a pe period in which many people think the, the nation is about to have a second civil war. They talk that language that the country is dividing into two nations of haves and have-nots. The Statue of Liberty is designed as a prophylactic against that. You know, there's a famous painting by Delacroix of uh, of uh, the, the French painter of Lady Liberty leading a charge for freedom across bloodied barricades. She herself is bloodied from the wound she's suffering from the Ancien Regime protecting their power. That painting and, and, and likenesses like it go all the way back to antiquity of Lady Liberty leading a bloody struggle for freedom. The designers of the Statue of Liberty, both here and, and especially in France, wanted no part of that. They wanted a much more pacific, and they say this, pacific, calming, peaceful statue that, that, that eschewed that kind of social antagonism. And moreover, when, moreover, when the statue was erected, and during the first nearly 20 years of existence, well past the turn of the 20th century, uh, journalists and cartoonists and others depict the statue as threatened by and you can see the the, comment, the the cartoons that do this, threatened by huddled masses uh, who, who are incendiary, filled with foreign ideologies, you know, inferior types, clinging to her robes, dragging her into uh, New York Harbor, that the great threat is from precisely these 
huddled masses. And Emma Lazarus's poem, which we all know about the huddled masses, wasn't actually inscribed on the pedestal of the statue until the turn of the 20th century, a good 15 or 20 years after uh, the statue was erected. Um, because there's an enormous fear in Amer among American industrialists and, and, and middle classes of immigrant hordes. They're terrified of the Paris Commune, that it will come to America uh, in strike after strike after strike. Uh, major newspapers, the governors, uh, presidents like Grover Cleveland and so on, denounce the strikers as carriers of alien ideology. They rant about what they used to call um, um, Petroluces. Petroluces were, were Amazonian-like women, they're depicted that way, throwing what the equivalent of what we would call Molotov cocktails into the streets of Paris during the Paris Commune. They, they say they're coming here. Uh, the, the, they're bearing this kind of foreign communistic or anarchist ideology. And so the statue stands for something very, very different than we have. It's only in the 1930s and afterwards that the statue develops this reputation uh, as a as a beacon of liberation uh, that we now think of it as. Instead, it's a statue. It's its conception and erection are defined by the class antagonisms of that Gilded Age era. And, I mean, as you're telling these stories, it's it's hard to not notice that it sounds very similar to some of the things that are happening today. So. That brings me to a point that you make in the book as well, that America sort of has this aversion to examining class or to talking about class. Um, yeah. And other countries don't necessarily seem to have that same aversion. Is is not talking about it openly or is pretending that it doesn't exist, is that part of the problem here? That is part of the problem in my view, yes. Any kind of denial of social reality blinds a society to the problems it otherwise might be dealing with. So if you have, if you have, say, take recent times, you know, all through the 1980s and 90s and well past into our, our century, uh, there's been this love affair with the free market, uh, you know, until, until the great crash, Wall Street tycoons as our heroes, as our savants, uh, every man is a speculator, we're all out for number one and, and in America, everybody has a chance to rise to the top. Even uh, 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 politicians as liberal-minded as Obama talk about the race to the top as if it's an antiseptic, uh, innocuous notion. But racing to the top presumes a society of winners and losers, and 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 losers are held in contempt. And when you don't, when you're not conscious, when you're not sufficiently culturally conscious of these kinds of divisions, of these kinds of hierarchies. You let these problems fester and so that we have the kind of gross inequality, unprecedented in American history. Even in the late 1920s, the levels of economic inequality didn't reach the levels they have reached today. Some of this under Democratic presidents. This is by no means, this is a bipartisan uh, 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 persuasion uh, that the market, the free market benefits everybody, that uh, uh, we're all becoming uh, great consumers, uh, uh, consuming members of the middle class. Meanwhile, 
we have these today, we have these teachers in these red states making 33 or $45,000 a year, doubling up as Uber drivers, you know, umpiring baseball games, you know, uh, 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 to get a little cash. Uh, they can barely get by. They have no no rights as working people. They, 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 they are used instead as scapegoats for another form of class inequality, namely the social malfunctioning of the educational system. So who do we blame for that? Do we, do we blame the, the, the gross disproportionate division of resources in our society, our wild misappropriation of resources at, at the expense, say, of, of something so vital as public education? No, we blame teachers. They're at fault. So they're, they're supposed to somehow do something about it. I don't know what they're supposed to do about that, but they're supposed to do something about that. And finally, they've had enough. And so you have this wave. I guess people are shocked. I'm a little shocked. These are all red states. Uh, you know, these, this is the land of conservatism, the land of acquiescence over the last 30 or 40 years. So you ignore these problems. You instead, you know, you, 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 you have a, a kind of corporate-minded uh, uh, corporate set of governments that uh, passes all kinds of legislation to protect and favor business, meanwhile cuts social spending to the bone, and finally you, you get this, where, uh, uh, you know, where you have these teachers rise. I mean, we think of teachers as middle class, as mild-mannered, as, you know, and, and here they are in the streets shutting down school systems uh, because we've ignored for too long, not only their particular problems, but the whole development of, of recent American life uh, as a as a deeply class divided uh, society. So yeah, you pay a heavy price for for deny for denial. And and speaking of the middle class in America, it is this is something that you know politicians are constantly talking about, touting uh, programs for the middle class and things like that. Is is the middle class is this a myth? Is there is there an actual middle class? And if so, yeah, I think increasingly there isn't one. That increasingly, I mean, one might look at these teachers. Teachers are quintessentially, I think, thought of as members of the middle class. They shouldn't be. You know, teachers from the very beginning were low paid women. That's who did that work. You know, for many many decades, mm -hmm. they were paid terribly. They had no security. They were treated, you know, like, like women generally, you know, like they didn't matter as much. But okay, we tend to think of teachers as quintessentially middle class. Well, what's happened over these last, say, quarter century is that if they were middle class, they've been proletarianized. Uh, that, and I think that's a general thing you can say about the country, that if there was a kind of robust middle class, say, following World War II, thanks in part to some of the, uh, the unionization of substantial parts of the working population in the 1930s and 40s and thereafter, thanks in part to the New Deal uh, reforms that guaranteed the right to collective bargaining, provided other kinds of social welfare supports. All of that has been stripped away. Unions are a pale shadow of what they once were. If unions brought, quote unquote, middle class status to, say, industrial workers, well, the, the destruction of unions and the deindustrialization of the country over the last 30 years has 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 has, has, has moved those people back down into a kind of proletarian uh, status that, you know, the Americans great. But look, uh, 
one of the parts of the American dream is that we're all upwardly mobile. You know, there's there is this kind of endless elasticity. We move up. Uh, and there's a certain truth to that uh, over the course of its 200 year history. But what it, people like these teachers and others are, have experienced lately is a kind of downward mobility in large, large numbers. They no longer, they're doubling up on jobs. They're making half of what they used to make if they work at all. We have prosperity right now, right? That's the report. And, and in terms of unemployment levels and so on, we do. But what is that prosperity? It's premised on low wage labor. So you, you, you have this proletarianization of large parts of the population that may have enjoyed at least a decent standard of living and the accoutrements of what we think of as middle class living, a pension, uh, vacations, uh, you know, college education for their kids. That's a joke. Uh, you know, in other words, you, you go to college now if you're part of the vast working class in America, if your kid does. If he's lucky enough to, if he can afford it or she can afford it, she comes out with this mountain of debt, which will, you know, uh, follow her for the, the next 10, 20 years. The whole social uh, fabric of our country has been punished by this austerity and this deindustrialization. And, and so that we're more and more a class divided society, even among people who might have thought of their their work and lives as middle class. So. How do we move forward? How do we how do we deal with these? Well, these I think the, 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 you know who knows. I, the the first thing is to recognize what we periodically have failed to recognize. You know, in nineteen late nineteenth early twentieth century America, what I'm saying now would not have been a revelatory as it is now. People back then, maybe because it was so new, were quite accustomed to talking about the class divisions, as I mentioned earlier, in American life, and worried about them about the corruption of democracy by class privilege, for example, about the money trust. Uh, you know, we had presidents like Theodore Roosevelt uh, denouncing malefactors of great wealth, or Woodrow Wilson decrying the power of the money trust, both to control the economy and undermine democracy. So there was a law, and then there was a populist movement, and the Knights of Labor, and various kinds of left-wing socialist and anarchist and syndicalist movements, and, and various uh, progressive parties. So at one point in time, for a good long 75 years, the notion that America was a class-divided society was by no means alien. It was commonplace. It was part of our language. But beginning after World War II, and perhaps particularly beginning in the 50s with the kind of red hysteria that colored that decade, McCarthyism and so on, we became a society in fear of itself and began uh, 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 became afraid of talking that language and facing those realities. So what do we do for the future? We first of all have to look and I think we are uh, looking for the first, again, at, at, at those social realities. And I think the Sanders campaign is a healthy uh, the Sanders phenomenon, if you, if you want to call it that, or, or even the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, as brief as it was, are a sign, and the teachers movement today, uh, if, if we can call it that, are signs that we are uh, having that reckoning. That doesn't mean it's it's a it's a clear clear shot from here to <laughs> to some promised land. You know, Trump Trump's victory is also a recognition of the class realities of American life. He's playing with them. He's manipulating them. He's a very dangerous, toxic character, nor is he unique. We see the same kind of right-wing populism developing in Europe and so on. We read about it all the time. So, uh, but what I guess I, it, look, it's dangerous times to live in. It's as the Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. We do. And uh, uh, But how they'll 
turn out. I'm not a prophet. I don't, I'm a historian. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, the book is Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. Steve, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe and leave us a rating because it really helps.